Well, good morning again. Open with me to in your open with me, excuse me, in your copy of the scripture to Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Got two waters today, y'all. Ready. All right. Hydrated for this message. Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me as I read aloud here. Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silence in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. It's the word of the Lord there. One main point, and that is Paul's apostolic ministry is superior to the imposters at Corinth in both knowledge of the truth and purity of heart. That's the main point he's making. His apostolic ministry is superior to the imposters there at Corinth in two areas, knowledge of the truth and purity of heart. Chapter 11 begins what has been aptly called the fool's speech. It'll start here in 11 verse 1 and go through chapter 12 uh, verse 13. And so Stephen despite what he may title his sermon, will be continuing on in the fool's speech, presumably part two. Um, But but this is where this speech starts. And and certainly you have to imagine that Paul had Proverbs 26, 4, and 5 in the back of his mind here, being a master of the Hebrew Scriptures, which you'll recall says, answer not a fool, or do not answer a fool, According to his folly, lest you be like him. Next verse. Answer a fool. According to his folly. 
lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, show him the folly of his actions by emulating them back to them, playing the game a little bit to show him how foolish this is. So the question is, hey, as a, as a Christian, as a, as, a, as a leader, should I answer someone according to their folly? The answer is, it depends. That's why we find this in the wisdom literature. What I'm suggesting here is that Paul is clearly taking the second option in this speech. Answering a fool according to their folly. He is content to play the game to make a point. A very important point. He wants to show the foolishness of the Corinthians trying to evaluate him alongside these other so-called apostles in the way they're trying to do. That's what we're going to see here today. So he starts off with giving a reason for all of this after saying, I wish you would bear with me. I wish you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. So he's up front. I'm going to engage in some foolishness. Bear with me. That phrase, do bear with me, it's in the ESV, it's translated as an imperative, like bear with me. But it also can be translated just as an indicative, which is something like, and if you're reading another translation, it may very well say that, something like, you're already bearing with me. Or, of course you bear with me. The idea is, uh, you know, on that, on that understanding is, would you bear with me with a little foolishness? Oh, wait, <laughs> you already are. Look at the conversation we're already having. Of course, of, course, of course you'll bear with me. You're already doing it. It's something that you're doing. And then he gives, again, his reason. Holy jealousy. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, giving the motivation for this whole thing. The picture here, which is admittedly lost on contemporary ears, is a father who had given his daughter to be married to a particular man, betrothed to that man, something like an engagement period, not exactly the same, but it's the closest thing that we have. And it would have been culturally understood that it was the father's responsibility to guard that young woman's purity until she got to the finish line. All right, until she actually got married. So it wasn't enough just for her to get there alive. The father would have wanted her to get there pure, having maintained her sexual purity, her virginity. And so Paul is drawing on this analogy and saying, Church at Corinth, I betrothed you, and I am concerned for your purity. I am concerned with your purity. He's going to keep developing these things. I'm not content with you just making it to the finish line. I'm content with you making it to the finish line in sincere and pure devotion and having maintained your spiritual virginity. It's what he's going to argue. So Paul situates his, miss, his mission here and his concern eschatologically in terms of the end of all things. That's why we read Revelation 19. Corinth is a betrothed bride. Christ is the bridegroom. The consummation is yet to come. So what does the, the betrothal period look like between I give you and consummation? It looks like right here. And this is where Paul's concerned. He situates, situates it eschatologically. He said, I promised you this bridegroom. I promised you impurity. I am dead set on guarding it. But that sets the stage for his fear. That's the fear. So he's got, here's the reason I'm doing it, but here's the fear. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere 
and pure devotion to Christ. So notice he just went to the very end, marriage supper of the Lamb. Now he goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to the very beginning. And how did the serpent deceive Eve? Was it because he was really sharp looking or something? No, it was with his words. Is that what God really said? Is that what God really said? I, I, I'm not so sure. I think, I think kind, of, kind of God said it this way. And that is what some of these people at Corinth are saying and doing. He says, I'm afraid that you're going to be led away from your pure devotion during this waiting period here. Your thoughts. Your thoughts. That's key. Look, your thoughts will be led astray. Notice what he doesn't say in this exact context in this particular passage, that he's concerned about their imminent apostasy, that they're one thread away from losing the gospel and all going to hell. He's concerned about their thoughts. He's concerned about their beliefs. He's concerned about presenting them pure. He isn't content, again, with, with the mind or heart dallying around on the way to consummating a marriage. He's wanting purity of thought and heart, correct belief, Imagining the real bridegroom and not a distortion of him. And he doesn't want them to be led astray. He doesn't want them to see the bridegroom and say, oh, you look a little bit different than what I was expecting, actually. Because I've been entertaining these other thoughts. I had this different picture of a bridegroom that's been crafted in a different image by some of these influential teachers. He says, no. Our thoughts are going to be pure to the bridegroom. This is so important, he says. And then he gives a situational example there. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, which is an awkward English translation. In the Greek, it literally just says, you bear well with it. You bear well with it. Which is an ironic contrast with the first First verse, bear with me in a little foolishness. Will you bear with me? These, these people come and preach a different Jesus and a different, and you, and you bear with them. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Different Jesus. There's a little bit of discussion about what is the different spirit here. It's just like, a, you know, there's a couple different understandings. It, notice that it's, when you, have, when you have one of these strange little phrases, just notice it's in between another Jesus and another gospel Somewhere conceptually in that framework, okay, is it a different spirit of the, uh, a different, not so much a different Holy Spirit, they're, or uh, they're not preaching necessarily a different Holy Spirit, is this a different spirit of teaching, is this a different um, driving momentum to obey the gospel, is it in fact a different Holy Spirit, somewhere in the ballpark there, it honestly isn't very clear, but the point is, they're preaching a different gospel with a different Jesus, with different truths surrounding um, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and how to live in light of that. That's what it is. Not a totally different one. That's important. It's like they're not saying there is no Jesus. No, no, they're presenting a Jesus. They're presenting a gospel, right? It's just a distorted version of it. Just a distorted version of a gospel. It's a distorted version of a Jesus. And he says, you bear with them pretty well. Certainly you'll bear with my foolishness, right? He gives this response of bearing with. And that's kind of how he sets it up. That's the introduction. And in verse, then in verse 5, he starts to get into the fray here. He starts to enter the fray. Some of the foolishness. He says, I, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. 
I mean, why does he call them super apostles? Probably two reasons. Number one, it's like the modern day quotes, like super apostles, kind of a bit of a jab at these folks, but also they were truly very highly regarded by the people in Corinth. So it's like two birds with one stone kind of a thing. These super apostles, you all think they're so super. They're making these claims that they're superior to me. Paul doesn't give an inch here. I'm not in the least. I am not in the least inferior. On a stack ranking, I'm not below them. Not one inch. I'm not. I'm not inferior to these super apostles in the slightest bit. He says, to the extent that I'm not a trained speaker, I make up for it. In knowledge, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you. Listen, I'm not skilled in speaking, even if that's the case, which by the way, it's not, we don't really necessarily know that that's the case. Paul seemed, some of the stuff that he said seemed to be a pretty good speaker. Okay. But he says, even if I'm not, I am not so in knowledge. And by the way, when you're vying for influence based on who can grasp reality most tightly, being superior in knowledge is a pretty good place to be in comparatively. You know what I mean? I'm superior over here. Well, I'm superior in like knowing things. I'm not in the least inferior to these people, even if I'm not a polished speaker. And by the way, you know me, I have to do this sanctified speculation. You have to wonder, because who's about to go down to Corinth? Y'all remember back from chapter 8? The famous one. You have to think in the back of his mind, like, yeah, y'all think I can't speak? (laughs) Wait till my boy gets down there. He's going to smoke y'all. Because I'm sending the famous one, and anyone who's a trained speaker, whew, it's this guy who we're sending. Now, I just made that up. That's not in the Bible. But I have to imagine, if I were Paul, okay, that I would be thinking, I'm about to, you, you think that y'all have some trained speakers down there? Wait, wait till the guy that we're sending comes through. I'm going to see how well that holds up. Perhaps. He says, I am not so in knowledge. And then he ramps it up. He gives a rhetorical question. Um, And then uh, he's going to give some extremely exaggerated language. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? And so what does it mean that he humbled humbled himself here? Well, the idea would be kind of that you charge what you're worth. Okay, so maybe as an illustration, you're getting started in the music industry uh, maybe you're not very good, or maybe you're really good, you're just not very experienced, and you're, and you're going around trying to get some gigs, you're probably not demanding high dollar, you're probably not commanding high fees to bring your talents to bear a particular venue there at the beginning. You don't have a name, you don't have a reputation, and therefore you know that, and so you're not going to command you know, a high fee. Whereas if you're an event planner or someone trying to get, you know, I don't know, Garth Brooks to show up, you better be ready to come off some paper, you know? Because and the idea is you, you, you kind of charge what you, you're worth, and Paul's, and that's that's just what was expected in the culture. Paul's not charging anything. He is legit as it gets, but he's adopting this humble posture of the I'll play for free musician. It's a posture of humility. This idea that this might even be offensive to the church at Corinth seems odd to us, but to them it wouldn't have been. Listen to how one commentator sums it up. He says, to be sure, from their viewpoint, Paul had painfully breached social conventions in rejecting their patronage of money, gifts, and hospitality, which were at the time conventionally given 
those who taught and lectured. He's like, it's, it's, this is gonna, we're going to find out that this gets worse in just a second, actually. He's like, you're not even accepting, our, he's not commanding anything, and he's not even accepting our stuff. He's not accepting what we're giving, what we're offering to give him. He uses this huge hyperbole. He says, after saying, did I commit a sin rhetorical question, humbling myself so that you might be exalted? He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. What, listen to how strong a language that is. He said, I'm not, and here's the thing, he's not opposed to receiving support from churches. This is one of the controlling questions of this passage. Why is it that Paul is not opposed to receiving support from churches, but he's opposed to receiving it from Corinth? Why is it that Paul is not opposed to receiving help from churches, but he's opposed to receiving it from Corinth? He says, of course I have worth. Other churches are, understand that, and they're funding this whole thing. Of course I have worth. I'm not committing a sin by not charging you for the gospel. And then he's going to continue on with this theme of money and compensation. He says, and when I was with you, and I was in need. Listen to that. I was with you, and I was in need. I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So this makes it even, honestly, more socially bizarre. Makes it even more uh, uh, polarizing. He zooms in on time that he spent there. And he points out being there and having concrete needs while he was there, but those needs being met by folks from regional churches. <laughs> so I mean, just imagine, just imagine you have a founding pastor. So Stephen goes out and he's, he's conducting an itinerant ministry of preaching or whatever, but he, but he still cares for us. He's still, he's the founding pastor, right? Paul founds the church coin. So Stephen, he goes out, he's still in contact. He's still writing us letters. Um, still concerned for us, and we wanted to compensate him for his time and his efforts and the way he still blessed our church, but he wouldn't accept them. But well, why not? It's like, okay, well, maybe we'll just give him a pass. But then he comes through for a season. He's taking a break from the itinerant evangelism field or whatever it is. He comes through, and hey, he's going to spend a season in our church. And as he's spending that season, it comes up that, uh, that he actually has some needs. He has some financial needs especially. And we're like, oh, we are so happy to meet those needs. Instead, he goes, no, 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 no. I won't accept that either. Um, there's some folks coming down from Kentucky who are going to bring me some money and some food. Think how weird that is. You have to at least put yourself in the position of the Corinthians. That's bizarre. It's socially awkward. Does that cause him to rethink it? No. Again, he says, I am going to continue to do this as we will get down in the passage, as we'll get down to it in the passage, he doubles down. And what am I, what I am doing, 12, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Now, back up to verse 11, because then... This, verse 12 is going to unpack unpacks verse 11, okay? And, um, and 10, excuse me. As the truth of Christ is in me, so this boasting of mine, the boasting is proclaiming the gospel free of charge, 
will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why not? Because I don't love you? Is that why I'm not accepting your stuff? What's the answer to the question? Do you feel that? Do you feel the tension here? It's like, why, why is it that Paul is okay with accepting money from churches, but not accepting corn? Is it because I don't love you? That's not it. What's the answer? Verse 12. Verse 12 is the answer. What I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to. So here's the purpose. I'm continuing to preach the gospel free of charge, and I'm not going to take your money in order to what? Undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. You know why I'm not taking your support? Because the people who are comparing themselves to me and with whom you are comparing me aren't on the same team. We aren't on the same mission. And we aren't on the same payroll. We don't serve the same master as it's going to become clear toward the end of the passage. My preaching of the gospel free of charge is a jarring tangible expression that we are not simply talking about the difference between a team captain, a starter, or someone who rides pine on the apostolic team. All right? We aren't on the same team. We aren't on the same team. We aren't on the same mission. Any superficial similarities are just that, superficial. We're not alike. These people take money. They don't have the purity of heart that I do. I am proclaiming a free gospel because I love you and because I, am, uh, because I have a high esteem of the gospel. It is a free proclamation of a priceless gospel. A free proclamation of a priceless gospel. And the Corinthian church and the culture of time just didn't have a space for that. Their heads are like exploding over this idea. And so what Paul does here is he makes a very specific very contextualized judgment call about how his very source of financial support stands to potentially undermine the gospel on his lips. He is not going to get lumped in. He makes a situationally specific judgment call, a socially polarizing course of action, honestly, that he otherwise would not have, take, uh, would not have taken because the credibility of the gospel on his lips is at stake. And the free proclamation of the free, free means free. In the Greek, when you look, it means free. Free proclamation of the gospel is a badge of authenticity. It sets him apart from these people. And in 13 and 15, the gloves really start to come off here. The gloves really come off. This is kind of the intermediate climax, initial climax of the fool's speech. Verse 13, he lets them have it, doesn't he? For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Again, we aren't on the same team with different rakes. We serve different masters. These are people in disguise. It's a masquerade. They're playing dress up for Jesus. A dagger in the stomach here, and then he twists it. He twists the dagger in the stomach. And no wonder, it's not surprising that they're disguising themselves. Why is that not even surprising? Because 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. No, it's not really surprising after all. Like, so goes the master, so goes the servant. Satan truly looks holy and angelic. The picture here is. Satan really appears like light. He doesn't appear like, again, uh, some dark hooded figure from Harry Potter or something. All right? He doesn't look like a dementor, if that's the right word. All right? He looks like a delightful thing. He looks like a true good thing. But he's not. He's a thing that will kill you. That's what these folks are doing. That's what, that's what he's saying about them. You know what these people are? They're masquerades. These folks are satanic Cinderella's. And guess what? Clock's about to strike midnight. What happens at midnight? Their end will correspond to their deeds. They will be exposed. And if you sow from the flesh, you sow lies, you sow deceit, you reap destruction. That's what these people are headed for. They aren't your friends. They're not guarding your soul. They're not giving you theological best practices. All right? They aren't leading you into truth. And the results of their lives will be spending eternity with the father of lies. Their end will correspond to their deeds. A heavy end to the section where Paul takes the gloves off for the sake of the gospel and making himself stand apart so that he can say, my apostolic ministry is superior to the imposters at Corinth, both in knowledge of the truth and purity of heart. That's how he starts the full speech. End of full speech, part one. What, what can we learn from Paul? What can we learn from Paul? couple of things to pull out, but very much like 2 Corinthians 8, you really get the nuts and bolts of a leader struggling with how to address issues in a church. Because someone could say, well, where's the gospel in this passage? Where is the gospel explicated in this particular exact passage? And you might say, well, look, he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a virgin to Christ. There's the gospel right there. Or you might say, listen, the whole letter is gospel-saturated, but he does zoom in here on these practical considerations, just like in chapter 8. Hey, how are we going to come get this money? We've got to keep good optics. We're sending three dudes down here, the famous one, the earnest brother, and Titus. It's like this is, he's giving you plans and logistics. And here you see, a, you see an apostle who is fighting, he's engaging very practically with these particular people, and he's actually trying to show something about himself in this passage. In the full speech, he's actually trying to vindicate himself for the sake of Christ. But that's why so much of the language is Paul-directed. It seems, you were, from one perspective, you could say the passage seems more about Paul than about Jesus. And that's like right, but with an asterisk, right? He's defending situationally something that sometimes can make application challenging. But there are, there are at least two, I think, concrete applications to be helpful to talk about. The first is this. Answering a fool according to his folly 
wisely. How do you answer a fool according to their folly wisely? Can you imagine Christian Twitter reading what Paul says about himself here? They'd blow, they lose their minds. I can't, and it's going to get worse, by the way, to dip into Stephen's text, part two here. Yeah, do they have a pedigree? Are they servants of Christ? Verse 23, I'm a better one. I have a way better resume than these folks. This, he's just getting warmed up here. Trajectory is going to continue. He's engaging in the folly of the comparative evaluation that he said back in chapter 10, when they judge themselves by themselves, they lack understanding. Now he's like, okay, now I'm going to step in and we're going to see who, 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 who compares. He's so prideful. How could he say that? It's not a cautious word, Paul. You just need to turn the other cheek when people say they're superior to you and say, oh, just be meek and mild. Just be meek. I don't know why I always talk so softly when I say meek. It just feels meek. Wisely. Doing this wisely is the key because most answering a fool according to their folly is just saying or doing what someone else did to you to, so they can feel the same hurt or that you feel justified in insulting them the same way. But remember, that's verse 4, not verse 5. That's you will become like them. Don't answer a fool according to their folly so you become like them. But there's clearly a space for two different things. One, not answering a fool according to their folly. That's the first part. But then there's a way, and then there's a way to answer a fool according to their folly and become like them. Wrong. But then there's a way to answer a fool according to their folly and it's righteous and wise. So how do you do that? Because if we're honest, I think a lot of people just prefer the safer route here because of how it could look to other people looking in on the outside. Let me give you three practical principles that I think are helpful for wisely choosing to answer according to folly. Um, first is an ensure that your goal to bring a, is, a, is to bring awareness by demonstration, not to hurt or verbally spar. What you're trying to do is you're trying to give someone a visual, concrete example of what they are saying or what they are doing because that creates an effect that is different than just saying, I disagree or trying to explain. It is an embodiment of what that person is doing. And they're like, oh, wait a second, that's ridiculous. And you're like, right. Yes, it is. Exactly. Okay? It's like a little kind of a prophetic sign act. To, to mix biblical categories. You're giving them something visible. You are presenting some kind of demonstration that strikes the ears and the heart differently than just mere speech. So, But make sure that that's your goal. Your goal is to bring awareness to folly, not to verbally hurt, not to hurt or verbally spar. The second, have an end game short of full and total persuasion. You're not God. This is not like some fail-safe, uh, not fail-safe, uh, um, guaranteed principle for persuasion. You have to give this up initially or you will end up becoming like them. You can't just say, well, this is going to be the new way I operate around this house. This is just going to be the new way I operate in this relationship. That's not how that works. That's becoming like somebody. You have to have an end game past just total, until it catches, until it takes. This is my new MO. Not how it works. You have to have an end game that is short, a full and total persuasion because you aren't God and you can't change someone's heart. So have that in mind before you start. 
And then finally, ask questions as a part of the demonstration. This is a great way to make it feel like you're not battering somebody. Is it okay if I, if, oh, you're saying this, is it okay if I do this? Would you, how would you feel if this happened? Okay, well, I was thinking about it. What I think I'm going to do is um, go play golf while you take care of the kids all day. How, about, how does that sound? Does that sound okay with you? No, it doesn't? Okay, so then when you think, okay, so you're, you, you construct examples. You can ask questions. I'm trying to give, um, I'm trying to paint a picture of what I feel is going on or someone is doing to me or with me, and I'm using questions as a part of that instead of just saying, all right, well, fine, this is how it's going to be. If you're going to do that, I'm going to do this. I think there's more to say about this, but I think if we can do these three things, we have a framework within which to engage people, answer people according to folly in a wise way. Ensure your goal is to bring awareness by demonstration, have an end game short of full persuasion, and ask questions as a part of the demonstration, interacting with that person. The second, the second point doesn't have so much to do with emulating Paul, but seems to be his primary concern here for the church at Corinth, and that is the importance of spiritual virginity. The threat to Corinth's virginity were, were false apostles. And, you know, we've got false apostles and people who, gosh, this is so ridiculous. But there's people who claim to be apostles and prophets and all the rest. And there are some really easy targets for this application if I wanted. Some of the word of faith stuff, people calling themselves contemporary apostles and this and that. Also the, the, the prosperity gospel. But here's what I, I was, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, listen, no one and almost no one here I'm worried about embracing that. It would just be throwing red meat to my crowd to bash the prosperity gospel and some of this stuff. Everyone just nod their head and say, of course. So like, well, what is, what could actually be a tangible danger for, for our crowd here at RBC Nashville? The world listens in apparently from Europe a lot now. Not talking to you, okay? Not talking to you, according to our sermon audio statistics. Here's what I think the, the danger could seriously be. Is being led astray by a cacophony of voices that's been brought up multiple times in this sermon series. Um, being led astray by a version of Christ that is lopsided according to our own personal preferences and listening to teachers who present a particular perspective of Christ, a true perspective, a true perspective as the whole Christ, as the whole thing, as the perspective. Christ is like this, fill in the blank with one of the facets of Jesus. We aren't careful, we'll end up worshiping and living for a distorted version of the bridegroom. So what does this actually look like in practice? You can see it, there's a lot of examples. Those who have been hurt or feel burdened, depressed or anxious, they're going to tend perhaps to listen to teachers and preachers who give you more of the gentle and lowly Jesus. And I don't mean the book that's recently come out. I just mean the idea of the gentle and lowly Jesus who doesn't make demands, who doesn't give me shoulds. I'm tired. I'm hurting. I'm weary. A Jesus who just says, it's okay, come rest with me. Yes, that's who Jesus, that's what Jesus would say. When? That's just what he would say, because that, that's the kind of Jesus he is. That's what Jesus would say. Okay? Well, what about those who feel like they're losing in a culture war? Have you seen what's going on around this, this place, this country? What we need is table-turning, Jesus. 
We need someone who's going to stand up for truth even if, if he pushes people away. That's what Jesus would do. That's what he would do. We're, we're, we need someone with a spine. Someone who can step up. We need someone who stands for gospel truth. He didn't care that it hurt people's feelings or looked awkward. He did what he did because he cared about holiness and show, so should you. That's what Jesus would do and that's the kind of people we need to be. The person who's been oppressed. Jesus is the one who cares for the poor and marginalized. He advocates for justice very clearly. He guarantees perfect justice at His return. You know what Jesus would do? He would be concerned about the oppressed and the poor. So whatever situation we're in, what we need to be doing is considering these things because that's what Jesus would have done. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we need to have the mind of Christ. And you know, you know what the mind of Christ is? It's, 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 it's being concerned for the oppressed, doing justice. No, no, no. If, I, if You know who the Christ, for people who are fearful and anxious, Christ, the comforter Jesus, the Psalms, they marinate, this, they live right here. Jesus is my rock and my refuge. This is God incarnate in Christ. Comfort me. Be my refuge. This is where I go to. What Jesus would say is, it's okay. I'm here. You're safe. That's how Jesus would... That's the kind of people that we need to be. We need to make people feel safe. We need to help protect other people. We need to press into a God who is protector. What about a people who are particularly concerned for the study of truth and Scripture is theologian Jesus. If not, a jot or a tittle is going to pass away. We need to know it all. Okay? I don't even think that's a good interpretation, but it, it sounded good. Okay? Uh, of how the, that particular passage. If it's, if it's not going to pa pass away, we should know it all. People who don't study theology are suspect. All right? Jesus was a man um, concern for the revealed truth of God's Word as He revealed it Himself. Hey, when I think of the Word incarnate, I think of the Word inscripturated. When I think of Christ, I think of a theological master. That's what Jesus would say. How can we learn more about my Father? I could go on. I could go on. All right? I want you to notice the danger here. All of these angles and facets are accurate. All of them are true. Not, not, not the shoulds that I get, gave from them, but all of the descriptions. All of those are true descriptions of the character of Jesus. But there are many influential people who proclaim one facet of Jesus as the whole Jesus and call people to be faithful to it. And therefore, they reduce Jesus. It's a reductivist Jesus. Some people do it because they think um, the times call for over-indexing on one particular facet of Christ. What I'm suggesting is we need to love and worship and embrace and live in light of the whole Jesus all the time in every context. And that a kind of a tailored, reductivist Jesus can powerfully advance an agenda, but it won't transform anyone's heart, won't transform a relationship, won't transform a nation, and it won't call people out of darkness. Will, my son Will, had some crummy little toy. I think he got from Chuck E. Cheese. It was this lame little ball, but it was a collection of, I, I believe, hexagons that kind of snapped together and made a hexagon ball. I know that's not the right word for it. Some, some math nerd come tell me what a hexagon ball is. But basically a hexagon ball, right? 
Um, and it didn't, you know, and so the thing is, it didn't fit, it, it didn't like fit together extremely cleanly, or at least for me, because I can't do anything like that. But what you would have to do is kind of put them together and you have to hold it very gently and carefully, right? Because what was, what was frustrating about it, what was way easier is to just, let's kind of let it on the ground and just pick up individual pieces and say, yeah, let's, let's just play with this one, Will. Of course, he's like two. So, oh, yeah, here's your favorite color one. This is the ball right here. Here's all the different facets of this thing. No, here, this is, let's just, let's play with this one. Let's play with this facet. Instead of the effort it took to kind of hold the thing together, honestly, it took effort and care to hold it together. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. What was easier is just to break it down into its constituent elements and hold each one out. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying you can't do it with Jesus. What you should be listening for, what you should be pursuing is here's the whole Jesus. This text shows us this side of the ball. We're going to take the whole Jesus into this situation. And now you're struggling with this. I'm going to turn the whole ball this way. So I'm never breaking down Jesus into some reductionistic smorgasbord. Pick my favorite attribute of Jesus based on the times or my preferences. I'm bringing the whole Jesus which is harder to wield together, which is in a lot of people were honest, is not totally satisfying because it doesn't comport with their interests and their agendas and how they would like Jesus to be in some cases. But we have to have the whole Jesus. Why? Concluding takeaway right here. Read this with me. Because we, be- because we become like what we worship. Fact. Because we become like what we worship. If you are constantly bearing with, like the Corinthians, a tailored for the times presentation of Jesus, your thoughts and your life will unconsciously become disfigured in the name of Christian faithfulness. Let me read that one more time. Because we become like what we worship, if you are constantly bearing with a tailored for the times presentation of Jesus, reductionist Jesus, pick your attribute Jesus, your thoughts and your life will unconsciously become disfigured in the name of Christian faithfulness. You will believe that a particular Jesus, a distorted Jesus, a cut down Jesus, pursuing that is what faithfulness looks like. And perhaps one day you'll be very surprised to see a bridegroom that looks quite a bit different than that. So the challenge is, can you hold the whole Jesus together, even with the parts that you might not like? Because Jesus doesn't care if you don't like certain parts of him. He doesn't care that he that you don't like the fact that, you know, he he's asks how many questions in the gospels and only responds with like three answers, the rest are other questions or an illustration. Why didn't he just give a straight answer? If he was in this culture doing that, people would lose their minds. Why can't he just give a straight answer? Why is he all mealy mouth to that hurting person? You telling me I can't go your 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 burden is gentle and lowly. You're telling me I can't go bury my father? You're telling me I have to come follow you? I'm struggling. You make demands of me? Yes. I think that no one would be totally satisfied because of our own distorted expectations, our own desires, our own preferences for what Jesus would like. So the challenge is, can we as a body of Christ hold the whole Jesus carefully together and do honor to what the text says so that we do not unconsciously become disfigured in the name of pursuing Christian faithfulness. I'll leave you to ask those questions to yourself. May God give us help and hold us fast. Let's pray. God, we love you. 
And we pray that you would guard us from worshiping a Jesus that is created in our own image. A Jesus that has our interests, our top interests as his top interests. Jesus looks suspiciously like us. A Jesus whose concerns and dispositions and what he would hypothetically do in 21st century America is suspiciously like what we think is best. What a coincidence. God, we pray that as we read the Scripture and we look at this God-man, that we would do business with the whole man, that you would keep our thoughts pure, preserve our spiritual virginity during this betrothal period, and Lord, we do await the day that this marriage is consummated and we see and we see and we know as we are known. Give us grace in Jesus' name.